Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today in my lounge by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? I'm very well, thank you, John. Excellent, excellent. It's a lovely day, isn't it? Lovely day for voting. Couldn't be better. Yeah, you're a bit worried about the weather, aren't you? <laughs> are people going to stay at home? I'm not worried about it. I do think I do think that um, you know, if if you subscribe to the view that turnout will have a you know, an impact on what what happens today, then, you know, the fact of it being a winter election, you know, and it's raining and it's going to just chuck it down, it might even snow in some places, then the temptation must be if you come home from work in the dark and the rain and you haven't voted, is to put the fire on, put the central heating on, open a bottle of wine and and stay in. Yeah, I guess we don't know who that would affect affect worse, though, so it's anyone's guess. Yeah, exactly. And I guess that's the problem with this election, especially in respect to the stock market. We just don't know what's going to happen. So we can't really say anything about about what the markets are going to do. No, and of course we've we've had lots of polls. Most of the polls have been given the Conservatives a 10% lead. Comrades poll yesterday, which said it was a five-point lead. Mm. Nobody knows. The exit poll will be fascinating. So 10, 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock exit poll. And the last two exit polls, so in 2015-2017, I think even in 2010 did a pretty good job as well. So they seem to, whoever's doing the exit poll, seems to have got, you know, on the basis of the last three, got pretty close. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting times. It's been it's wreaked absolute chaos with magazine production because we're trying to produce a, a bumper Christmas issue at the moment, and part of that we're looking at the outlook for UK equities, and we can't do that until tomorrow, and then we've got a very short time to put the whole thing together. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think it's fair to say that the stock market and the currency market will be pretty active tomorrow. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, well, this is the calm before the storm, sitting in the lounge before uh, heading into the office tomorrow to uh, to make sense of uh, of whatever chaos ensues. It's going to be chaos either way, I would imagine. Should we talk about some of your uh, your uh, musings this week? Yeah. Because we can't really make much sense of, uh, of politics. Let's start with your magazine column uh, before we move on to Alpha. Um, the magazine column is, is kind of a follow-up piece to the one you did the previous week about red flags. And this is looking at a specific type of red flag in respect of acquisitions. Uh, companies make lots of these things, and uh, in short, you've got to be careful. Yeah, I mean, it is a it's a fact of a fact of business life. Companies buy other companies, and it's gotten a bit of a bad name. You know, acquisitions, buying companies, they've got a bit of a bad name because over the years, so many of them have gone wrong um, for lots of different reasons, uh, which I go go into in my piece. You know, look and you know look at the you know the, the warning signs for an acquisition that might go bad for for example you know a very big acquisition relative to the scale of the company um overpaying for an acquisition and i talk a lot in the piece about how to actually work out you know just a simple way of looking to see whether a company is overpaid or not looking at the initial return on investment so the profits that you're buying as a as a percentage of the price you're paying, then you take into account things like cost savings, future growth, very much just like valuing a share. Yeah, financing costs. Yeah, and just look and see whether you know via growth or cost savings, you can make an acquisition stack up financially. But what is true is that it is usually an inferior way to make good profits because. 
when you build a business, and I talk about this, the difference between buying and building, when you build a business, um, you can actually generate, generally tend to generate higher returns on investment than buying because you are only paying the asset value, the cost of the materials and the assets, whereas if you're buying a business, you have to pay the, the, premium. the economic value, and that gets reflected in the premium yeah. or the goodwill. And that depresses the return on investment that you will get. So, so why do companies buy rather than build? Uh, lots of reasons. I mean, um, generally, companies will buy to accelerate something that they can't do themselves. So that might be entering a new market, um, like a new geography or a new product market, uh, it may well be to build scale in an existing market. One of the biggest reasons uh, you see for acquisitions and a common theme in acquisitions is a company buying another company in the same industry. And that scale can get lots of efficiencies known as economies of scale. So, so you might not necessarily be able to build that scale organically. So well, you, if you could, it might take you a very take, long time. Yeah, t- the, the time premium is just too great. Yeah. So, so there is an, a good rationale sometimes for buying rather than building. Yes, definitely. And, you know, you will see businesses that are justified, the acquisition of them are justified on the significant cost savings and efficiencies that they can get over the following two or three years in terms of enhancing profit margins not just not just for the business that they're acquiring, but also for the business that they already have. Yeah. These often get referred to the name as they're not cost savings, they're referred to as synergies. So it's the, the value, the extra value they can get by putting these two businesses together. The, yes. exi- the existing one and the acquired one. So you might have two two processes duplicated in, in the acquiring and the acquired business, and you take one of them out. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately, it often involves people losing yes. their jobs. And that, but that, that comes at a cost too, obviously. So yeah. this thing, these have to be taken into account too. Yeah. And of course, you know, and it goes back to you know, the red flags that I was looking at last week. Yes, the costs of making people redundant are seen as a one-off, but they can be big. Mm. You know, there's still an outflow of value. Big and continuous. I mean, these, uh, these think processes can take yeah, years. Yeah, and... and, and you know the cost. The cost of doing that needs to be taken into account as well. And my my concern is that a lot of investors ignore that. Mm. So, so you know, it sounds like uh, there is a simple trick for getting acquisitions right. Don't pay too much. Don't don't overestimate your cost synergies. Make sure that there is a good strategic rationale for doing it. Why do why do so many why do so many people get it wrong? Especially when they're you know, these are senior management, very well paid, advised by very expensive investment bankers. How is it that they get it wrong so much? I think I think that a lot of companies are you know they're under pressure. They're under pressure to keep growing because you know existing businesses businesses are like you know living things in some ways. They they go through a life cycle. They start off small, they grow, and then they stop growing and slow down. And most company management don't want to be running a business that's slowing down. And you've got shareholders that are pressing you for higher profits, higher dividends, because they've got to keep their their investors happy. So so the temptation will always be to, to buy uh, when what you've got runs out of growth. And that, that itself is a warning sign. You know, you have businesses that that buy other businesses to mask the fact 
that their existing businesses are ex growth or actually declining. Yeah, and you've given some examples, some really good examples of of companies that that have used acquisitions almost as a as a, as a trick, very to, much so, to disguise yeah. the fact that the performance is is, uh, is starting to to weaken. Yeah, I mean, Carillion, the, the construction support services business that that basically went bust, uh, was doing this. Um, and actually, this is not the benefit of hindsight. If you were keeping an eye on this, the suspicions that they were doing this could have been easily raised at the time. The signs were there. The signs were there. Um, but I think the other thing to mention as well is it's not just overpaying and, and, and that kind of thing and buying the wrong businesses or buying something that, that goes wrong. It's also doing it with debt. If you buy these businesses with huge amounts of debt and then the acquisition runs into trouble, then you are you are really up against the wall. And it can lead, you know, in the worst case scenario, it can lead to bankruptcy. Because, you know, quite often you quite often as well, you have to be careful who you are buying from. You mentioned private equity. Yeah. The, uh, I would never buy anything from private equity because my suspicion with private equity is that if you look at the economics of how private equity works, they look at what's known as an internal rate of return on their investments. And by far the largest chunk of their internal rate of return comes from what they sell the business for. Mm. So they are looking to maximise their internal rate of return by maximising their selling price. And that's, that's not just selling to other companies, not selling to acquirers, but also either selling to investors through the stock market, through a listing, potentially. Yeah. And... My concern is, and I think I've been, you know, there are grounds, there are lots of examples of this, is that private equity has a tendency for leaving very little on the table for the new buyers and maximising their value at the expense of the buying company's shareholders. Um, And this is my concern, actually, with an, an acquisition that's ongoing is restaurant group and Wagamama. Mm, which you mentioned in the piece. Yeah, and there's already signs here, Wagamama's, that this deal might be turning sour, which I go on to in, in, in the magazine. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's still growing. I mean, Wagamama is still growing if you look at the figures, but not, not at the rate it was when it was bought. Was it juiced up then to, uh, to make it look better? Well, the, the concern, you know, it was doing phenomenal like-for-like sales growth. Mm. So we've seen a sharp... I mean, it's still doing decent, decent. You know, it's still doing 6% like-for-likes, which is you know, what a lot of restaurant and pub companies would crave for. But that rate of growth, it surely affects the price that you're going to pay for it. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean you know, they've already paid. You know, restaurant groups paid $559 million for this business. And when they bought it, it was making 30, £32 million pounds of operating profit proper operating profit, which includes all proper costs. That was in 2017. Now, we look at the sort of rolling basis. This business is still only making just under £35 So despite, you know, rapid like-for-like sales growth, if you look at the trailing 12-month profit of Wagamama's, and I include, you know, share-based payments here and bar and opening costs, which I think are proper costs, this business is still only making, you know, barely making any more money two years down the line. I mean, Restaurant Group was a bit of a, dare I say, a desperate buyer when when Wagamama came along. It's its core business, but it had it had run into trouble. Yeah, I mean, you could see that Restaurant Group is actually 
making the same mistake again in that where Restaurant Group got into trouble is it massively over-expanded its business. Um, you get a maturation effect. When you open up shops, restaurants, you tend to get a maturation effect where the, when you open a restaurant or a shop, it doesn't achieve its capability of of its potential, its potential sales very quickly. Some of them can, some of them can do it very quickly, but generally it takes a while for them to get up to speed. And so you get when you're opening lots of new stores or lots of new restaurants, because you've got lots of restaurants getting up to speed at the same time, if you're doing an aggressive opening program, this maturation effect gives the impression that your company is growing very quickly. Um, but essentially what's happening is that you're getting up to speed. Now, you've got to question this with Wagamamas. You know, this is what's been going on with Wagamamas. And you see the, you see the slowdown in growth. And these companies, these companies are very operationally geared. They have a lot of fixed overhead. And when the, when the sales turn down, the profits can turn down. And the danger here with Restaurant Group is that Restaurant Group has got a lot of operational leverage or operational gearing. And it's also got a lot of financial gearing as well. It's net debt to EBITDA is about two times, which, from my opinion, these are the kind of businesses that should have zero gearing. And this is net debt to EBITDA, excluding lease debt. So there's also a lot of lease debt in there. So to me, this is a classic, classic, uh, you know, red flag. Um, but that's not to say that acquisitions themselves are all bad. Yeah, you give some examples. Uh, so there are there are companies out there that you know who who don't, uh, as you put it, use use uh, acquisitions to kind of hide poor performance or just to hide uh, sort of various things in the accounts. So two of my favourite words here, shenanigans and jiggery-pokery. Yes. Um, but, but actually, there, there are lots of companies out there who have turned making acquisitions into a fine art. It's part of the strategy. Uh, and you've given a couple of examples here. How yeah. do they do it? So if you look at this, this, this seems to be like a common theme of successful acquirers in that what they do is they already have successful ongoing businesses and what they become can become very good at is acquiring similar businesses but doing it out of either cash flow and not taking on huge amounts of debt and they use it to complement a business that's already growing this is what you might call bolt-ons yeah exactly this is what's known as bolt-ons and they use it to sort of turbocharge up their existing growth, and they do it without betting the farm on it. And um, the two companies that I talk about in the article that I think have been very good doing this is, one is Diploma, which is a medical devices, it does, and also does like specialised seals. Um, It has been a very, very good business and has been able to buy companies staying in a net cash position while doing it, so not taking on any debt, and still keep growing the sales, keeping the profit margins high, keeping the return on investment high, keeping the free cash flow high. And this is shown, you know, in the superb shareholder returns that this business has has generated over the last 10 years. And the other one that's done it really well um, is um, Halmer. Um, which is a company I really, really like. I used to hate it, actually. But, I, but 
sort of when I first started looking at Halma nearly 20 years ago, I thought this was a company that was making too many acquisitions and a company that was using acquisitions to mask a a lack of growth um, in its business. Something that the finance director later said to me he thought was spot on. Yeah, maybe it was at the time. And it, maybe it was. And then we had a new chief executive come in, and he's still there actually, who's done an absolutely fantastic job with Helmer. And he sorted the existing businesses out, he's got them growing, so he's got underlying organic growth, sales growth, profit growth, and they've been making these acquisitions and they've been like bolting them on, like adding the bits of the jigsaw, and doing extremely well with them. And again, you know, the, the theme is there, that they're not betting the house on this. They are not overstretching the financial strength of the business. They're keeping the returns on their existing assets high, their margins high, and their cash flows high. And um, this, for me, you know, the, the, I think what I took away from doing this, doing this bit of work is that if we're looking for good acquisitions, you're looking for more of the sort of bolt-ons. Mm. Whereas the bad acquisitions are the big ones, finance finance with debt, that essentially are all or nothing bets. And the danger is they end up being nothing. It's, it's interesting, actually. There's a great quote in the magazine this week from Chris Dillo. Uh, and I don't, it's not, I don't think it's on the subject of acquisitions, but it does fit what we're talking about very neatly. So the bosses often prefer the easy job of building empires to the trickier one of raising profits. Yeah, and I think that sums it up absolutely perfectly here. That is true, and the other thing as well that you come back to with all of this is the way that management are incentivized, and generally speaking, the management bonus structures within companies are based on earnings per share, EPS growth, yeah, rather than return on investment. So one of the easiest ways to increase EPS, and let's face it, when interest rates are so low. It gets a lot easier to borrow money. You can pay a lot higher prices and still enhance EPS because your cost of borrowing is very, very low. And one of the easiest ways that you enhance earnings per share is to buy a business, have a load of cost savings with it, then then give you earnings per share growth for the next couple of years, and then when they run out, you try and do it again. Mm. And that might make you very rich as a manager, but it might actually jeopardise the wealth of your shareholders. Yeah, it's uh, definitely something to watch out for. And I mean, companies like Halma and Diploma, I guess the flip side of them being so good at this is that they're probably quite expensive. And uh, this leads us quite neatly into your alpha report this week, which is the last of the year. Sterling years work there, Phil. But you mentioned uh, that you're going to be establishing a new portfolio in the new year to sit alongside your fantasy SIP, which is going to be a UK quality share yeah. portfolio. The likes of Halma, possibly, Diploma? Yeah, I think Candidates so. for that? Uh, definitely candidates, yeah. Uh, but but it, the price, I guess, is going to be the problem. This is the problem, and this is the problem. And, you know, I think in many ways, the, the UK stock market is one of the most difficult markets out there. Um, if you are taking this good business approach to investing, because it's not like the American market. The American market stuff full of fantastic companies mm. i think we should write more about them but there you go I, I, if anyone's listening and actually has any views on that please let me know I don't, yeah. I don't, should we write more about quality american companies i think we should mm. i think we should it's getting you know it's getting cheaper and easier for our listeners and our readers to trade these kind of kind of shares but also 
to buy them collectively as well. You know, obviously the cheapest way to buy bundle of quality American companies is to buy an exchange traded fund or an index tracking mm. fund. Um, but yeah, the UK market is, I, I you know, I think it's really hard. So I'm going to try and accept the challenge and see what I can do. I, I heard about this. Someone told me about this. Phil's proposing a UK only SharePoint. I thought Phil never said that. But this this is an intellectual challenge then. I think, I think <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, and one that I'm prepared to admit that I may well fall flat on my face trying to do it. But I'm going to try. It's worth a go. This is a um, very interesting experiment. I think it's I, an interesting, you know, even if it, you know, I'm not saying that it's going to smash the market. But I, obviously it's going to aim to try and, by cutting out the rubbish, cutting out the cheap value stuff, sorry to be blunt about that, but and then trying to focus on the good companies. You know, the aim is to say maybe put forward a, a portfolio of 20 shares, equal weighted, mm-hmm. 5% in each. And it will be monitored properly, so things like spreads and trading costs will be all put in there. And just see how we get on. And it may well be that some expensive shares go in uh, and they may get offset by cheaper ones. So the overall valuation of the portfolio, you try and keep it reasonable. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've written a lot about this year is this whole issue with valuation. I think it's one of the one of the biggest lessons I've learned over the last few years. Maybe Maybe a function of, you know, how the markets behave. But I think... You know, doing doing the research into you know what shares perform well, um, I think you you mustn't be frightened. The mis- biggest mistakes I've made in investing is focusing too much on cheapness and foregoing the ability to have a business that can grow over the long term and compound. So you can actually, if you've got the right business, if you've got a really good business that's capable of growing. You you can actually pay what looks like quite a high entry price, a high valuation, but over the long haul, I'm talking like five, ten, ten years, getting more towards ten years, you can still end up with actually very, very good investment results. Um, but you have to have that long term perspective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to writing that one. Having said that, I mean the tips of the year portfolio that, that you helped put together last year I mean that's that's done really well I don't know how's it done really I'm, really I'm well I've not even looked it's at it it's in the 20s somewhere so far touch wood is it really what yeah. as a blended average uh, as a sort of uh, yeah blended average total return over the years it was well into the 20s and what's the I think the all shares what about 14 yeah, is it something, something like that it's, it's doing, doing it's pretty bad, well and, and I remember the, the, we, we sort of thought about quality when we were doing that we so did we, yeah we sort of have applied that and uh, we did I mean it's hard. I think we tried to sort of blend it with a bit of cheapness. And yeah, a bit of value. EasyJet was in there. That's been a bit of a roller coaster. EasyJet looked like a disaster. And it came, I, came good to us. I think <laughs> I think we'll thank Thomas Cook for rescuing that. <laughs> that was where Britvic was in there. Britvic for Terra did pretty well. Terra for a while, and then that sort of. But yeah, you know, w- London, London Stock Exchange. I think London, London Sto- Stock Exchange. London Stock Park. Exchange. And I think W H Smith was in there as well, wasn't it? I don't think W H Smith was. was Hollywood in- Bowl was in there. Yeah, Hollywood Bowl is a business I really like. But the market doesn't seem to agree with me. That's been been a really subdued performance. But I really like the way that company is managed. Two years ago, if you'd asked me whether I would think investing in the shares of a bowling alley 
would be a good thing to do then. Yeah, you don't strike me as a bowling kind of guy. For... Uh, I went on holiday, actually. I did a bit of bowling. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and I, Sorry. It surprises me. Yeah, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. And um, I actually think it's great, great value for money. And I, you know, I like businesses that offer value for money. Mm. And I think Hollywood Bowl finance director is, is actually very engaging on Twitter. Yeah, but that's see, that can be a warning sign as well. It's no, no, over, it's, overzealous. Chief no, no, no. There's no, and... there's no ramping here. Right, right, right. There's no ramping of the shares or the share price. You know, you know. He, for example, he'll put a tweet on saying that they've opened the new Hollywood Bowl in a town, and it's got this, and it's they've done this to it, and they've done that to it. So really, it's shareholder access, as much as yeah, no, he's not so. You know, he's, you know, he's. I've spoken to him. He's a thoroughly decent guy. You know, he's not one of these. You know, he's not a ramper at all. In fact, anything but. So, what I'm saying is, I applaud that level of engagement. Yes, I do as well. Absolutely. How could you not? Let's talk about uh, your alpha report this week. Uh, not a lot of quality on show in here, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's been, uh, fact, it's been, there's some shockers in here. Yeah, I think. I think. Which shocker should we start with? Ted Baker. We've talked to Ted Baker. Talked that to one death. to death, haven't we? Yeah. But actually, I actually think now with Ted Baker, if Ted Baker is fixable, then I think I think the current valuation is very interesting. Isn't it just like French Connection once was, though? It's like fabulous UK, mid-market brand, thinking global, starting to get a bit popular. Yeah. Got a bit big for its boots. Everything... All the wheels fell off, and now it's sort of struggling to be profitable forever. I'm doing French Connection here. But is, does, does Ted await the same fate? It's a very good question. And it kind of feels like it at the The moment. risk has got to be. It's interesting, though, that Tosca Fund took a big position in Ted Baker shares this week. It increased its um, state. Tosca's a special situation. Well, yeah, it, it basically took a 5.9% stake in Ted Baker after the profit warning which was two days ago yeah so we're thursday now so tuesday and all the directors have walked basically yeah and you know they didn't have a previously disclosable interest so they had less than three percent ownership of this business so they've gone in here i just look at look at the maths on this okay so the current market capitalization of the business is 160 million there or thereabouts Last year, the business made fifty million of post-tax profit, and it made thirty-three million of free cash flow. Now, we can have a debate about whether there's works of fiction going on there. I've raised I've raised my doubts on some of the things like stock and all that kind of thing. But you know, if you if you could if you got to fifty million, you're paying one hundred and sixty-two million. For the equity of a business that was giving you giving the equity shareholders fifty million, that's P of three point two. If you've got thirty three million of free cash flow, that's a free cash flow yield of over twenty percent. Now, if you can make half that, you're still getting a P of six and a half and a free cash flow yield of ten. Mm. But let's face it, we don't know. We don't know. This business could unravel. It's, I find it extraordinary that, that, you know, in this day and age, with all the reporting requirements that are expected of companies that we can know so little about the real situation in it, in a company that was very large, like Ted Baker. The bull case will be, as you've, as you've rightly mentioned on, you know, how strong or otherwise is Ted Baker as a brand? 
does somebody does somebody believe that that brand is worth a lot of money? And I don't know. I, I don't know. You have to talk to experts in the fashion industry. All I will say, just from back of the fag packet stuff, which I admit is very, very spivvy. <laughs> you know, it's very, you know, it's not exactly in-depth analysis. But, you know, if you're trying to, you, that's, the, that's the, the question you've got to ask. You know, you look at the you look at the value of the business. It implies very low level of profitability for this business going forward. Is that right? And that's that's the decision that investors have got to try and answer. And it's a very difficult question to I, answer. I think it's, I think it's a really strange situation. And obviously, it all began the the, the kind of company started to unravel. Obviously, with the, with the sort of uh, the chief executive scandal. Earlier in the year, and I, I just wonder, you know, the sort of the ripple effect of that, whether it has damaged the brand in, in quite a fundamental way, because it's only since then that we've, you know, that it's really struggled to shift stock in the way that it has. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's also, isn't it? It's a business of, you know, the, the wholesaling business looks like it's doing all right, but then the big customers for wholesale would have been department stores, and they're having an absolute yeah, horror of the time. Well, things it's, like that, you know, airport concessions and yeah. that kind of thing, but. Whoever buys in an airport, I've never. Uh, I mean, for me, this is not this is not a business that, you know, my kind of approach of buying and holding on to sorts. It's not the kind of business I would look at, but I think it is the kind of business that contrarian, distressed type of investors should certainly have a look at, um, because. You know, my, one of the things I always go on about about investing is that you don't necessarily need to protect, protect, project the future with great de- degree of accuracy. You, one of the biggest things that you have at your disposal is the ability to reverse engineer share prices and look at the expectations that are baked into mm-hmm. share prices. And then you take a view as to whether those expectations are in your favour or not. In this case, the expectations are very low. Indeed. This, this is classic cigar butt stuff. Here. It is, yeah. Um, should we talk about another slightly distressed-looking situation, which is Photo Me? We don't talk about that very often. It's, a, again, a funny little company. I mean, it was photo booths. So there was, there was a change in the, the, law, the law or the requirements for passport photos this year. I think it essentially it's, has, it's has rend- more... rendered this business redundant. I did my f- passport photo... Two years ago, and uh, I did it at home on an iPhone, shaped it all up on the passport application website, all done. I actually came to renew my driving license picture this year and went online, and they had access to my passport photo. Right. So I didn't have to send them a new photo, and they used the picture on my passport to put it onto my driving license. So that was, you know, another photo I didn't have to do. Now the UK is, from what I'm led to believe, is pretty unique in this, in allowing people to essentially adopt a DIY approach. On the continent, not so much. Obviously, the big risk is, is that they they say, well, it seems to be working all right in the UK. Let's let's give this a go. Mm. And you just get a collapse in revenue and profitability. And the company is trying to offset this with laundries. And, you know, you always sort of struggle with that. 
there are parts of the world where, where the market is still doing okay, even in, you know in Europe, parts of Asia. And also there's a business-to-business side of doing, doing laundry for things like hotels. Um, and then they've done the strange acquisition of going into fruit and vegetable juice. Yeah. It looks incredibly profitable at the level of businesses it is at the moment. It looks to be making 50% profit margin, but on a very small base. My, my view on this is, you know, the yield here is 9.5%. And there's not the business is not generating enough cash flow to pay that. And your fear with this is that the real cash cow of this business is getting hammered or is going to get hammered. And that they can't offset this with laundry, fruit juice. <laughs> it's just, you know. So strange. I'm sorry. I, I, yeah. This is a classic value trap. I think, I think the only thing it's got in its favour is that it, it, it has a net cash position, excluding leases. Mm. So it's not going to go bust anytime soon. But it uh, might just wither, wither away, sort of. It's difficult to see the long term attractions here. Yeah. Should we uh, should we finish off with quality? There is there is I lied. There is a quality company in your alpha report this week. It's Ashted. Yeah. Yeah. Continue to really like this company. One for the uh, one for the UK quality. No, portfolio? The, 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 the real caveat, the caveat on this is that it's a cyclical business. Eventually, con- when you know when construction demand takes a downturn and Ashdead's customers start giving its plant and equipment back to Ashdead, um, the profits profits will fall quite sharply. You saw that in the last recession. And it makes it quite a difficult business to try and work out what it's worth. What I will say is it has been impeccably managed. Jeff Drabble. Yeah. But he's off, isn't he? Yeah, but I'm not too worried about that. We always take the view that this, you know, the business is not just the chief executive. Obviously, the chief executive sets the tone and sets a strategy. But, you know, you've got to believe that, you know, you look at what's been going on with this company the last... 10 years and I don't think one person could do this on their own you know there's, there's clearly a a business model a structure a culture in place here and also let's let's be honest a very favorable market in the United States um, that has allowed Ashdead to, to do incredibly well and that that market still looks really favourable because, you know, the construction backlog in the US still looks very good. And also what you have got is you've got an extremely fragmented market. You've got a lot of small, medium-sized plant hire equipment businesses that are ripe for bolt-on acquisitions. Again, Ashdead is a great example of bolt-on acquisitions working. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the political environment is very good for them as well, you would imagine. I mean, you know, you've got a presidential election coming up next year. You know, whoever wins that is going to want to keep growth ticking over quite nicely. Very accommodative money, monetary policy. Yeah. Hearing a lot of talk of fiscal boosts. A lot of infrastructure needs to be replenished over there. We always, we often talk when this cycle is going to end, but it's, I can't see, I can't see when. That looks good. I think the only thing, the only sort of cloud on, on Ashdead is its UK business. Um... You know, the UK business looks horribly oversupplied with plant equipment. And it's, it's 
too many it's too many businesses chasing too few customers mm. just to give you you know give readers a flavor you know ashdad's ashdad is very good at providing you can you know it tells you the return on investment they're getting on their bits of machinery that they hire out and in america they're getting 23% return on their kit which is great it's one of the reasons why ashdad is such a good investment because it can invest money at 23% mm. It's a compounder, a bit, albeit with a cyclical caveat. In the UK, they're making seven percent. Seven percent. I mean, it's. I you know, I say this in my in my article that you've got to be getting to the state now where Ashton's going to question this business. Yeah, because oh, we talked about acquisitions. What we, what we obviously haven't talked about here is disposals, and actually that's an equally important part of of doing business for for many companies. Absolutely, Ashton must be thinking. Well, what they're, the do- coming here. what they're doing here is what all good plant rental businesses, whether it's car rental, van rental, equipment rental, is when, when profitability is under pressure, you slim the business down, you sell off stuff. You, it's called defleeting in the trade. Mm. And you reduce the amount of money you have invested and you generate cash flow from selling off assets. You pay off the debt that's associated with these assets because these assets are funded by debt. But Ashdead, Ashdead's not running ridiculously high debt levels. Um, it's, it's below, on a net debt to EBITDA, it's about 1.9. And it set itself a ceiling of two. But at the moment, Ashdead is in a really nice, in the, in the American business, the, the, the business is in a real sweet spot in terms of the age of its fleet, which is just under three years. And it has been aging that fleet a little bit which means that it's not been replacing as much. And there's a great table in the presentation, uh, in the half-year results presentation, which shows you how much cash flow, genuine sort of underlying free cash flow, this business is throwing off lots and lots. Mm. I I like it. Um, Shares are cheap. They are. I mean, they trade at a premium. I mean, they're on about just over 10 times sort of next 12 months earnings. But you can buy. Um, there's a there's a quoted comparator in the competitor in the United States called United Rentals, um, which is its main competitor. Is it as good as as Ashton? Ashton's making slightly higher profit margins, um, and you can buy United Rentals for seven point eight times earnings. Mm. It's probably better to look because these companies are so um, indebted. It's probably to try and look at maybe an enterprise value when you can. And I haven't didn't do that in this report, but if I was doing a more detailed study of Ashdead, I would compare its enterprise value to say operating profit with United Rentals and see what see what the the valuation was implying. I think Ashdead is slightly better for me in terms of its profitability and the way it's going is slightly better business than United Rentals. All right, big one to look at in the, in a future column. But uh, there we go. Anyway, there's a few more companies uh, you've uh, you've spoken about in your alpha report this week: Stagecoach and uh, Fuller's, Fuller's the, uh, and Purple group. Bricks. Purple Bricks, another funny little company. Yeah, uh, lots and lots in the magazine this week. I don't have a copy in front of me because I'm at home. The sector focus is looking at North Shore, written by Mark Robinson. Algie Hall has looked at his uh, stock screens 
that is run over the year to see which is the best performing. Personal Finance and Funds got an interesting piece there on commercial property and uh, some of the liquidity issues they're having there. They'll no doubt be talking about that on their podcast tomorrow. Lots, uh, lots of company results still, though it's slowing down a bit uh, as we head towards Christmas. Lots of news. Uh, in fact, lots of, uh, sort of scandalous news this week, uh, which is exciting. Tullow Oil, uh, Glencore. Ted Baker, and another one that I can't remember off the top of my head. And the cover feature, which this week is uh, looking at AIM shares and some of the, uh, the tricks that go on in that, uh, what some, can sometimes be a bit of a Wild West market. Michael Taylor, who trades it regularly, has, uh, has, uh, has revealed some of the uh, shenanigans, to use that good word again, uh, that go on there. Anyway, thank you, Phil. And we'll be back again next week for yeah. our last podcast yeah. of the year. Pick up the magazine and all good news agents. Avoid Ames traps. Have a good weekend and uh, speak soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.